Hey, imagine with me that you were a farmer and you wanted to maximize the yield that you got out of your fields so when it came harvest time, you made a little bit more money. Think about the things you might do to your fields. You could amend your soil, add some hummus and minerals. DJ, you could help us out with that. She recently did some soil testing, and I looked online. There's all kinds of things you're supposed to put in soil to make it more fertile and productive. So if you're a farmer, you could amend your soil. You could come back a little bit later with some fertilizer or weed killer, killer and uh, you know, make sure you're keeping things clear and clean. You could install some irrigation, making sure every square inch of the field had adequate water supply and was going to give you a, a higher yield come the harvest. Or you could just make sure you got your seeds where they were supposed to go in the first place and then make GPS devices to go in tractors to make sure it's perfectly managed, right? You, and if you were a farmer, you, you could use any one of these methods and increase the yield of your farm. But you're a lot like me. None of y'all are farmers. Instead, you're disciples of Jesus. And there's really only one way to increase the harvest of fruitfulness in your life. This parable identifies it for us. It tells us how we can live a fruitful life, how we can be sure that when the harvest comes, when Jesus returns to earth to see his people and to ask us to give an account of our lives, how can we be sure that our lives are fruitful? Because there's one thing that you've got to hear and do the word. That's what the parable of the soils is all about. And this morning, I want you to know that true disciples live a fruitful life because when they hear the word, they believe it and obey it. See, Jesus is deeply concerned with your fruitfulness. Jesus cares about the fruitfulness of your life. In fact, he told his disciples in John 15, he said, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. What, what kind of soil are you? What kind of disciple are you? Are you a fruitful disciple or not? And I think for Jesus, living a fruitful life means to live in a way that's consistent with his teaching and brings honor and glory to God. That's what he's talking about. He's looking for people whose lives are fruitful. They live consistent with his teaching and they bring honor and glory to God. And unlike the farmer, there's not a lot of different things you can do, not a lot of different inputs, not a lot of different things to tweak. It comes down to one thing. How do you hear his word? And so this morning, we want to look through this passage carefully. It's pretty obvious, the interpretation. Raymond read it for us. It's Jesus' own Holy Spirit-inspired interpretation of the parable that comes a few verses before. So as a preacher, it's easy to preach this. I don't have to do a lot of digging I don't have to do a lot of convincing. It comes straight out of here what it means. But because parables are meant to force you to contemplate, identify, and respond to some element of spiritual truth, I want you to think long and hard about your response to God's word today. So that is the question the parable turns on. How will you respond to the word? Jesus says in verse 14, the sower sows 
the word. The sower sows the word. It's an interesting little phrase that is kind of new to us in Mark's gospel. And I did some wrestling with it this week. What exactly does Jesus mean by the word? If you put it in quotation marks and search all of Scripture for this phrase, the word, you'd find it everywhere. The Old Testament, the word, came to prophets. It'd say, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Isaiah, and he said. Or, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying. And they would speak God's word to his people. They were the divinely appointed spokesmen who were sent to declare God's truth. In the book of Acts, the word is everywhere. And the Lord blessed the word, and thousands were added to their number, and the word spread. When Jesus says the sower sows the word, then you got to ask yourself, what exactly is he talking about? And since we've been coming back to Jesus' first message time and time again, I think you're probably right in your inclinations to think of the sermon he preached in Mark 1, 14 and 15. The kingdom of God's at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the word that the sower, Jesus, is sowing. Everywhere he goes, every person he sees, he is sowing seeds. He's announcing the reality of God's kingdom, its nearness and availability to everyone who would repent and believe. But of course, not everyone responds the same way. That's the underlying theme to all of Mark's gospel. That on the one hand, there are crowds of people who follow behind Jesus everywhere he goes, clinging on to every word he says, observing his teaching uh, and observing his miracles. And then there are the scribes, the Pharisees, people who are rejecting him. And the reason they're rejecting him is because even though he's sowing the seed, not every soil is as fertile as the rest. And he identifies three particular conditions that make for an unfruitful life, an unfruitful soil, a receptive spirit to his word. He says first that there may be unbelief present. And I call it unbelief, but I was thinking about it this morning, even praying over it. I could be convinced that somebody might would say it's apathy. Because in verse 15, he says, These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. For these people, they hear the word, repent, the kingdom of God's at hand. And yet it goes one in, in, in one ear and right out the other. Have y'all ever been that way with God's word? It's like it, you, you read it, but you got to go back up to the top of the page and read it again because you were thinking about your lunch or whatever. Um, I've been there. I've done that. And so maybe these people are apathetic. They hear the word Jesus is preaching, and they just don't care. Um, but I say unbelief because Jesus attributes their unreceptive heart not just to a lack of concern or care, but to the work of Satan. And that should scare you. That kind of scares me. Think that I'm up here preaching sowing seeds for all of you and for the millions of people who tune in each week on Facebook Live. And there's some people present and Satan's at work in them. That as soon as they hear the word, it's not just that they're unconcerned or apathetic, but there's a spiritual battle going on. And Satan's coming and taking the word from them before it can get its roots in deep and bear fruit in their lives. That's a scary 
That's a scary thought. But not really surprising. Because Satan is everywhere in Mark's gospel. Right out of the gate, Jesus is driven into the wilderness, and for 40 days, Satan tempts him. Satan is opposing God's work everywhere Jesus goes. Then he gets all these interactions with demons. Jesus consistently exerts his authority over them. And yet there's something else at play, that not just in the obvious ways, little, little kids possessed by demons and being plagued and tormented. That, that's terrifying. But there's something happening behind the scenes where Satan is opposing God in unseen ways. Like, for example, in the people who reject Jesus' message. That's what Jesus is saying. That every time somebody rejects the word of the gospel, Satan was at work there. And so you start to look through the gospel of Mark, and you're like, well, who, who here is guilty of rejecting God's word? And you come on to this delicious irony that the only people so far in Mark's gospel who've been specifically called out as rejecting Jesus' message, the word, are the scribes and the Pharisees, the very people who said Jesus was possessed by a demon. Jesus says, no, Satan is at work in your hearts, keeping the word from taking root. Here's a consistent message Jesus shares with the Pharisees. He says over in John 8, 43, Why don't you understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. You're of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why don't you believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you're not of God. That's a heavy thing to have heard. Jesus says in other places a little more beautifully, I know my sheep. My sheep know me. They hear my voice. They follow. People Jesus is talking about who are filled with unbelief are under the influence of Satan, and they cannot tap in to the significance of the words Jesus is saying. You know, the Bible is clear that, that each one of us suffers in this way. That when God had created mankind, he placed them in the Garden of Eden, which was incredibly fruitful. And he gave them his word and told them to obey. And Satan came and deceived them. Told them, no, God knows that if you eat from this tree, you'll be like him, knowing the difference between good and evil. And so they rebelled against God, sinned against him, disobeyed his word, and ate of the fruit. And immediately their eyes were opened, right? And they could see things as they really were. They got what they wanted. And yet Paul says that their foolish hearts were darkened, that they had exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And because of their sin, you and I inherit a sinful nature, part of us that is constantly seeking what's best for me, myself, and I. Number one, right here. And part of that is that my actions are always tainted by sin, selfishness. My words are too. 
Instead of using my words to bring life, I tear people down. But our sinful nature also impacts the way we think. Paul says in Ephesians 4.18 that we're darkened in our understanding and alienated from the life of God. He also says in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Listen, every time you hear a message, every time you read the scriptures, Satan is at work trying to distract you and to deceive you and tell you that what you're reading and hearing doesn't matter. That, that's the way he works. He opposes God in obvious ways and in seditious, behind-the-scenes ways, sowing seeds of doubt. Can I really trust that this is true? Sowing seeds of confusion. Oh, that's really weird. I, I could never really wrap my right, mind around that. He's stoking within you unbelief. And for some people, it's highly effective. They hear the message, they read the scriptures, and it goes in one, in, in one ear and out the other, and it proves unfruitful. I wonder, is Satan doing that in your life? Has he convinced you that God's word is not true or trustworthy? And if it is true, it isn't good. That's not the only condition, though, that leads to an unfruitful life. Jesus also says that there's a fear of suffering that can take root in a person that causes them to abandon the word. He says in verse 16, In a similar way, these are the ones in whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately, uh, sorry, I was gonna, oh, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. Now this seed is deceiving because he says immediately it springs, they receive it with joy and it springs up. You think, wow, this is going to be awesome. These people are going to be really, they're going to be, you know, solid. They're going to stand on the truth of God's word. These are going to be people who are really going to live for Jesus. But something happens somewhere along the way that things start to get tough. I know y'all have been there. I'm not going to ask you because I just, I know. Things get tough. And when things get tough, they fall away. They abandon the truth of God's word. Jesus identifies two things. He calls it affliction or persecution. I think Raymond's Bible said something else. Uh, what was your first one, Raymond? What's the ESV say? He's Yeah, the ones on rocky ground. What's the first one? Affliction and what? Suffering? Tribulation. Tribulation, Tribulation or affliction. So you go through life and, and things get tough. You experience some heartache and some setback. The word Jesus uses for affliction is just like the normal stuff of life. But this other word, persecution, is different. Let me read you the actual dictionary definition. It's a program or process designed to harass or oppress. It's a strategy meant to bring people down and set them back. It's throughout the New Testament, and Acts 8.1 says that one of the first deacons, uh, his name was Stephen, was executed for his faith in Christ. It says immediately a great persecution broke out on the church. A coordinated strategy 
of oppressing those who believe the word. Later in Acts 13, it says that an angry mob was stirred up and they chased Paul and Silas out of town and a great persecution took root on those who had trusted in Christ. Persecution, a strategy, a planned and thought out programmer process to harass and oppress. Now at this point in Mark's gospel, we have not seen that. But Jesus knows it's coming. He can see by his understanding of Scripture and by his knowledge of God's plan that the Satan who oppresses him in his life has the same goal for his people. And he says, you know, no servant is above his master, no student's better than his teacher. They're going to persecute me, they're going to persecute you. And so he knows that it's coming. Suffering, affliction, tribulation, persecution, that's coming for his people. And when it happens, he says, some of them will fall away. In fact, the next time you see this verb, fall away in Mark's gospel. It's in Mark 14, 27. And he says, they're going to strike the shepherd and the sheep are going to be scattered and all of you will fall away. And Peter says, Lord, no way. Everybody else could fall away, but I never will. And Jesus tells Peter, no, before the rooster crows three times, you'll have denied me three times. So they're going to fall away. Jesus knows persecution is coming. And of course, the Christians who read Mark's gospel would have been familiar with this sort of pattern in certain people. Most people think that Mark wrote his gospel in the late 60s or early 70s, right around the time the Christians living in Rome had suffered persecution under the emperor Nero, who dipped them in oil, put them on stakes, and set them on fire to light his garden parties. So he knew, they knew full well people who earlier in life, when things weren't so tough to be a Christian, had been cheerfully, joyfully receiving God's truth and word. They'd built their lives on it. But when suffering, affliction, and persecution came, they fell away. Unfortunately, you and I probably know people who have done the same thing. That They went to church with you at one point, but man, life got tough, things got different, and that, they just don't seem to have time for God anymore. And I feel for people like that. I think probably along the way, you and I have bought into a, a false promise that following Jesus was going to be easy. That it wasn't ever going to cost you anything to stand for Christ. But, but that's just a lie. That's probably Satan's work, isn't it, of deceiving us and convincing us to believe lies. That part, persecution is part and parcel of what it means to follow Christ. I mean, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 12, that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not an incidental part of the faith. It's what we should expect. And in fact, if we can live at perfect peace with a world that hates Jesus and his word, we might be doing something wrong. And so Jesus looks at these people. He says, you hear my word, you receive it with joy, but when things get tough, you fall away. I wonder if that's true for you. Have you experienced the mockery of family and friends when you started taking your faith seriously? Have you played out the scenarios in your mind of what could happen down the road? If you continue to stand on truth, they talk about the SOGI policies, the sexual orientation and gender identity issues. Have you thought about what happens when you get called into the 
HR conference because you're making people uncomfortable talking about Jesus? Have you, have you thought about what that would look like? Jesus says some people who have given evidence of fruitfulness will eventually experience those things and fall away. Because when it comes to faith, it's, it's not always how you start. It's how you finish. The one who perseveres to the end, the one who overcomes, will be saved. So Jesus looks at people, sow in the word, and he says, some of y'all are going to receive it with joy, but when things get tough, the fear of suffering is going to kick in, and you're going to fall away. But he names a third condition that makes for an unfruitful life. And I'm calling that the love of stuff. The love of stuff. Verse 18, others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. The love of stuff, Jesus names three things. The worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things. The worries of the world is simple. That's the stuff the world worries about. By, word, by world, he doesn't mean like the planet or even the people. He means the spirit of this present age. The, the sort of that mindset that this is all there is. That there's no future, there's no eternity, that the one who dies with the most toys wins. That's the world's worries. He talks about them in Matthew chapter 6. He says, don't worry about the things the Gentiles worry about. What they're going to eat, what they're going to drink, what they're going to wear. The worries of the world. It's impossible, according to Jesus, to be worried about the things the world is worried about and produce fruit. He also says it's impossible to uh, have the deceitfulness of riches, to give in to the deceitfulness of riches and to bear fruit. And by that, it's the deceitfulness that riches bring, the way that you think, if I only had a little bit more, then I'd be secure and safe. The promise that wealth brings. And then he says the desires for other things, which is for those of us who aren't pursuing riches and aren't worried about what the world worries about, but there's other stuff. Whatever it is, he says, anything that causes you to take your eye off the prize will prove unfruitful in your life. That's why he has to say in Matthew 6.33, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all the else, all the rest will be added to you. It's priorities. You can't serve both God and stuff. But Jesus knows that there are some people who are going to hear his word, and it's going to continue growing right alongside their pursuit of all that other stuff. And so this becomes a constant thing for his ministry and for the ministry of his disciples. John says in 1 John 2, don't love the world nor the things in the world because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father's not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lusts but the one who does the will of God lives forever. 
It's incompatible to pursue the things of the world and also to pursue Christ. I think if we're honest with ourselves, that this is probably where most of us get hung up. Living in America, y'all, we got so much stuff. It's amazing how much stuff we have. And yet it never quite seems like we've got enough stuff. And so we give in to this whole idea of materialism, the constant pursuit for more and more and more. And many people struggle to keep the two things separate, their faith in Christ and letting his word take root and the world. You think about what would it cost me if I really took his word seriously when he says, for example, to the man who asks how he can have eternal life, sell all you have and give it to the poor. Now we know because we've been around church a long time and we've read the parables and we understand Jesus' main mode of teaching that he often uses hyperbole. And so he says, hey, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And so he couldn't mean that. So maybe he's doing the same thing with the man when he says, sell all you have and give it to the poor. We excuse ourselves from obeying that one because we understand that Jesus uses hyperbole. But think for a second if he wasn't. Think if Jesus asked you to sell all you had and give it to the poor, would you do it? Because he did say something similar. Like the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases it, he says, simply put, if you're not willing to take what's dearest to you, whether plans or people or possessions, and kiss it goodbye, you can't be my disciple. What stuff keeps you back from following Jesus, from allowing his word to take root in your heart and bear fruit? Now, the reality is any one of these three conditions could be present in us, just like any one factor could prevent a farmer from having the maximum productivity in his field. Any one of them could be present in you. You could have some unbelief, some fear of suffering, some love of stuff. They all lead to the same end. They cause his word to be unfruitful in our lives. And so I'd ask you, are you satisfied with the level of fruitfulness that you see in your life? Are you satisfied with the level of living consistently with Christ's commands and bringing honor and glory to God? Are, are you satisfied with the fruit you see? And if you're not, you might think about it. Is God's word not bearing fruit in my life because I'm not believing the things I read and hear? And if it is, you should go to God and admit it. God, you know that I'm struggling to believe this. Help me so that your word takes root and I can bear fruit. Maybe it's the fear of suffering. God, you know that I struggle to stand strong on that firm foundation that is your word because of what my friends are going to say, what my family's going to think my co-workers might would do. But God, help me. Help your word to take root so I can bear fruit. So that you could see the trials and the suffering not as something to be afraid of, but as his gift. And you could count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Because you know that suffering produces endurance. And endurance has its full effect and makes you perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Don't you want that? God, help me 
to trust your word. Help it take root so I can bear fruit. What if it's a love of stuff? God, help me to give up my love of stuff so that your word can take root and I can bear fruit. See, there's only one way to be fruitful. True disciples hear God's word and they obey it. This word accept is, is pretty cool. Jesus says they accept it. And it, it means basically to acknowledge something to be true. And so when you hear the message, the kingdom of God's at hand, repent and believe the gospel, you're like, okay, I could believe that. I could go there. That's correct, factually. But almost never in the Bible, when we talk about accepting something or believing something, do we simply mean to acknowledge its truthfulness with your, with your head? To factually agree, yes, that's true. But it almost always means to move it into action with your heart. And that's what Jesus means. He means not just to accept it as being true, but that you take hold of it and it, and it takes root and causes you to change. And in this context, don't you think, that he means something more than just recognizing the truthfulness of the statement. You know, you know that what we've seen is true. That your unbelief, your fear of suffering, and your love of stuff keeps God's word from bearing fruit in your life. But I can't convince you of its truthfulness enough for that to change. Only he can. And he does it primarily through his word. That's why Paul says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And so let me make it real clear today. This is God's word to you. That Jesus Christ, his son, came and lived a sinless life and died on the cross so that whoever believes in him be forgiven of their sins and live a new, abundant, and fruitful life. And if anyone hears it, accepts it, hangs on to it, obeys it, they will live a fruitful life, bearing fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. Will you pray with me?